Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, David French, Steve Hayes. We are going to, yes, we have to talk about COVID. Omicron has changed the situation, certainly, as we head into 2022. Then we're going to focus on the president's voting rights speech yesterday from Atlanta, both the politics of it, but also the substance of what legislation Democrats are pursuing on the Hill right now. right in. You know, when we talked about talking about COVID, we couldn't even really decide what in particular to focus on. But for me, I I mean, obviously, most immediately, we don't have childcare. I went to two different grocery stores, none of which had produce, any produce. Uh, The grocery store closest to me didn't have chicken, poultry of any kind, no ground beef. Um, I'm Just the politics of this, set aside the testing or the quarantining, schools are closed again, grocery stores don't have food, and people are holed up in their houses. Politically, this seems like more of a disaster than the Biden administration actually even could have seen coming to start out 2022. Steve, thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and and this, I think, will be a theme throughout this um this episode, including the discussion of of voting rights. I mean, the Biden administration, remember, his fundamental promise was to come to office and and make things normal again and to return to truth telling and competence. That's what he said. That's what he that was the argument he made. I think that's overwhelmingly why he elected, because he provided that contrast from what we had seen from Donald Trump. And now in, in so many different respects of his presidency, He's failing to deliver on that. Some of that you can make an argument is based more on, you know, broad economic trends, things that that he might not uh, be able to control, although I think a lot of the decisions he's made uh, certainly have not helped. But on this, this was w- one of his main indictments of Donald Trump. They handled it incompetently. They didn't tell the truth about what was going on. And we are at the point now where even people who were once pretty cautious about coronavirus and the steps we needed to take, the, the sort of go along to get along people, the the people who were willing to defer to public health authorities um, to keep their families safe, but also to, to do their part in ending the pandemic, um, have just had it. They're not listening. Nobody's listening to the CDC anymore. Nobody's certainly listening to the Biden administration anymore. The kinds of steps that people were suggesting that the Biden administration take with respect to enhanced testing regimes, with respect to uh, vaccine distribution, the kinds of things that Joe Biden criticized Donald Trump for not doing, he has failed utterly. At doing, And I think there will be tremendous political reverberations as you see them sort of flailing, trying to come up with some argument for uh, in defense of themselves and some way to, to end the pandemic. And David, I, you know, I've said this to you in our little texts and stuff. I guess at this point, I'm kind of confused. The vaccine does not prevent and by prevent, I don't mean it doesn't prevent any. I mean, 100 percent prevent the transmission of covid. At the point that vaccinated people can get COVID, give COVID to others, but the vaccine does seem to be nearly bulletproof at preventing serious illness and death, why are we still doing any of this? Why are there vaccine mandates? Why are we shutting down restaurants and schools? Um, why, Why anything if, for the vaccinated, it's going to be like you had. You had maybe something more like the flu. A lot of people have something more like a cold. Um, If you're not vaccinated, you've chosen not to be vaccinated. You've had plenty of time. Why aren't we done with this? Well, you know, my philosophy for months has been get vaccinated and live your life. Um, and, And I think that that's where the vast majority of people are, quite frankly, is get vaccinated and live your life. And I do think, though, however, there is a definite interest in uh, certain, in certain, in definite, in certain contexts, vaccine mandates still make sense. 
in the same way that like a seatbelt law makes sense in the sense that you value human life and that you value the life and health of your workers. And and there are certain circumstances where vaccine mandates make sense. There are certain circumstances where they don't really. And I think that there is overall, it's far better. In D.C. right now, you have to show a vaccine card and a photo ID to go into most businesses. Right. I think that's a big difference between that and saying, telling Navy SEALs you need to be vaccinated. So, for example, Navy SEALs should be vaccinated. Members of the Marine Corps and the Navy should be vaccinated because your health matters to national security, for example. Um, in other contexts, I think our, our employer vaccine mandates uh, are wise. Do you Should you be vaccinated to enter a... Um, to enter a restaurant? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But you know, what's really interesting to me is where you live just dictates so much of your experience uh, regarding this epidemic, because all of the stuff you're describing of going around where you live is none of the stuff that's going on where I live. The shelves are full there isn't the main frustration right now is people are just like, are we again having trouble testing? Really? We can't two years into this pandemic get tests seriously. But a lot of this, this hubbub that you're seeing about schools closing again and, and the way that people are reacting in certain parts of the country is just not at all not at all the way people are reacting elsewhere. And so it's, it's for me, it's kind of like I'm just watching. I, I feel like I'm, I'm watching something happen that has no bearing on the community and the world immediately around me. Jonah, why haven't there been political consequences for this? You live in D.C., the literally the highest infection zone in the country right now. And if my grocery stores are having trouble across the river, I assume your grocery stores don't even have ramen. Um. <laughs> So it's worth pointing out just on this grocery store point. Um, we the, the grocery stores near me are not in great shape either. Um, it kind of it was funny. I actually had a weird deja vu experience of my early days when I lived in Prague, just shortly after the fall of Berlin Wall, where like you could find toilet paper, but if there was a rumor that there was good toilet paper somewhere, you would like run across town for it because like the toilet paper you could find was just not what you wanted. Anyway. Um, it kind of has Jonah, that mood and not into the single ply and, um, uh, uh, from Belarus. Um, but, um, um, it is worth just explaining to listeners that DC has a particularly strange cultural dysfunction, which is that if you say the word snow three times, DC area residents think they are about to undergo the battle of Stalingrad and they rush to supermarkets and hoard and the city does. It is the weirdest thing. And like, and the problem is it's a collective action problem is like my wife's from Alaska. She's not afraid of a DC snowstorm, but she is afraid that all the people who are afraid of a DC snowstorm are going to ransack the supermarkets. So we go to the supermarket too, to get ahead of the panic buyers, which makes us indistinguishable from panic buyers. Um, but more broadly, you know, I agree with David, like when you drive across country, you realize how much this is really about blue islands in America. Um, and I think that's an important point. But it's also worth remembering that it's it's not disentangleable entirely because the inflation rate is high for the entire country. Right. We just this morning, we should add into the mix that that we had the highest surge in inflation in January or in December. Um, since 1982 and um and i think the inflation in a lot of people's minds is inseparable from the general covid stuff and people who want to have like clear lanes of accountability and 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 criticism um don't understand that we're that for normal americans it's just like things are a mess and i was told it wasn't going to be a mess and and I think there is going to be, and Sarah asked, is there going to be accountability? I think there is. I mean, I think, and again, we're going to get to the, the Biden voting stuff in a second. I think one of the reasons they're changing the subject to the voting stuff is precisely because they got no place else to go. And they're looking at um, a long, bleak winter of no political accomplishments, um, which 
is kind of stupid because they set the standards for themselves so that all the stuff they did, in co- they actually accomplished a lot, but they made it sound like if they didn't accomplish 10x of what they accomplished, they, w- they would be failures. So by their own terms, they're failures. I think, you know, it is very difficult to tease out the stuff that is and isn't Biden's fault from the general incompetence of the messaging about all of it. And the the one place where I think it is obviously Biden's fault is on the testing. They came into office saying testing is a crisis. We have to fix it. That was a year ago. There is no excuse to be caught this flat-footed on the testing. And I think that the the real danger for Biden is that this backlash stuff is concentrated in these blue islands and you're seeing lots of liberals talking about how they're sec- they're rethinking their views on all sorts of things because of the school closures because of the bad messaging and that's in his those are behind his you know uh lines of the the base and so i think that's one of the reasons like i have to rile up people on this other voting stuff I think, though, two issues like inflation versus testing are very different to me because the testing, oddly, it made a ton of sense for everyone to have tests a year ago. Now, with Omicron, the test makes so much less sense, A, because you're contagious two days before the test will show that you're positive for some people. B, because the test will show that you're positive 90 days after you've stopped being contagious for some people. Like if the test is both under and over inclusive, what's the point of having all these tests available? Uh, And so like it is a problem that the Biden folks said that it was super important and then don't have it available. I think it's a problem, for instance, for the you know, business vaccine mandate, which again, my husband argued at the Supreme Court, I am not an unbiased person in this. but to demand that every business with over 100 people uh, provide tests to all of their unvaccinated employees and then you don't have an ability for them to get tests or the test prices are going through the roof because of the scarcity. Like, yeah, that's a big problem politically for an administration. But like from a practical standpoint, I don't know that testing is what it meant a year ago. Compare that to inflation. Inflation, and we have new numbers this morning, right? Like inflation... Uh, on pace to be increasing at the highest rate in 40 years. I mean, we really are back in 1979 territory, um, everything costing more. I don't know why as the president heading into a midterm election where you could lose control of both houses of Congress, you would talk about anything but what you are doing to curb inflation. And again, something that will not help inflation, of course, is all of the COVID shutdowns, because what led to at least some of this inflation to begin with was COVID shutdowns creating labor shortages, labor shortages creating supply chain issues, scarcity issues, and then inflation followed that. There are other causes. I'm not saying that's the only one. But if you're going to do all of those causes again, what? This is, a like again, set aside economic terribleness. It is politically the stupidest thing I might have ever seen an administration do. Well, you know, the testing thing you raise, I think you raise a really important practical point, but I think it's just lost in the reality that people want to know if they have COVID. You know, I mean, that's just a bottom line. I want to know what I've got. And there's this COVID test that there is no reason I shouldn't be able to access. And Sarah, again, we've talked about this a ton on advisory opinions. Testing scarcity makes the vaccine, test or vax mandate, the OSHA test or vax mandate, unworkable. It just makes it unworkable. So, you know, that, and it's a very real thing for businesses to bring up to say, wait a minute, our rule is we can test and mask or we can mandate vaccinations, but we can't test. What? <laughs> and so, you know, again, that there's no, there's really at this point, no excuse for this. Uh, there's no excuse for this that we can't reliably test. I mean, my wife waited five hours, five hours for a COVID test. And then of course the results arrive two days after her symptom, her symptoms abate. (laughs) So, you know, that's where we are almost two years into this pandemic. And, and so, yeah, I, it, it really is the, the testing issue. I agree with everything you said, Sarah, about the, the efficacy sort of now in Omicron world, in a heavily vaxxed Omicron world, it's not quite as urgent as it was in previous iterations of the virus, but it's still 
in, A, inexcusable, B, frustrating, and then therefore C, uh, I think a disaster for the Biden administration. Yeah, but I just push back. I, I mean, I not push back, but I agree with you that inflation and testing are really very different phenomenon. I'm just not sure that they aren't conflated in a lot of people's heads, because what people think is this is just no way to run a railroad, right? I mean, they think that, and they they see the unavail unavailable unavailability of tests in the context of also the unavailability of chicken thighs and milk. And orange juice and this this general sense of like, this is not the country that I was told I was going to get once we got this guy campaigning on a return to normalcy and said he wasn't going to shut down the economy. He was going to shut down the virus. And there's a lot of things I think that you can't hold Biden accountable for as a strict matter, like the mutation of a virus in South Africa or wherever it first came from is not his fault. Right. And um uh, and a lot of the inflation stuff is not his directly his fault, but you get the sense that he is that his political responses to all of it are to double down on stuff that is not tailored to dealing with any of it. I mean, so like we get inflation and all of a sudden the same bill he was pushing for Build Back Better is now an anti-inflation bill without any meaningful policy <laughs> changes. You know, and you, you can go. He's done this kind of thing a lot. And it just seems like. He's not in charge. He's not in command of the situation. And he's letting a lot of young people who follow Twitter push him around. And that's it's not great, Bob. Yeah, just I, I would say that the problem to me anyway is is less his messaging and more reality. I mean, I think the, the reality that he's trying to, to deal with, as you say, Jonah, it's it's so unlike what he told us reality would be like when he was running for president that you don't have to have bad messaging or good bad messaging or good messaging isn't going to make the the suburban moms who were frustrated with school closures like Joe Biden anymore when they're when they're, they're not doing anything to change the situation they're not going to make more tests available they're not going to bring down prices they're not going to put bread on the shelves the, the the biggest problem he faces is reality and the fact that reality is not what it what he said it was going to be i think the messaging problem exacerbates that reality and just makes it worse i mean you know, remember on inflation last spring, they were not only claiming that it was going to be transitory, this was all going to disappear. I mean, it was almost like what Donald Trump said about COVID, right? I mean, this is this is nothing. This is going to go away. It's going to disappear. But they not only said that, they mocked the people, including people like Larry Summers, who said, now, you know what, I think this might be a bigger deal. Um, they have done this again and again and again. There's the famous moment where Jen Psaki takes a question from Mara Eliason of, of NPR at her press briefing on testing. And Mara says, well, gosh, maybe just send tests to, to make these tests more available. And Psaki very mockingly says, what are we going to do? Send them to everybody across the country? And three weeks later, they were in effect making them available, <laughs> sending them to everybody across the country. It's, it's, it's that kind of like arrogance in their messaging while they're failing on the on the grappling with reality and the policy solutions to this that I think you know potentially spells real electoral disaster for the president Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky Lucky in line at the deli I guess Aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, speaking of that, let's move then to the president's speech yesterday. He flew to Atlanta despite uh, protest is too strong a term, but voting rights activists and groups asked him not to go. He went anyway. Stacey Abrams, the presumptive Democratic gubernatorial nominee for Georgia, asked him, didn't show up, didn't want to be seen with him, said she had a scheduling conflict. Uh, Georgia is going to be the center of the 2022 midterms, right? It's a state that Joe Biden won. That's a traditionally red state. There's a Senate seat up for grabs that um, if Democrats hold on to it, very hard for Republicans to take back the Senate. 
frankly, if Republicans take it back, reasonably hard for Republicans not to take back the Senate. Um, That gubernatorial seat is filled with all sorts of emotion at this point because there's going to be a dramatic Republican primary between sort of the Trump forces versus the no, the 2020 election wasn't stolen forces in the primary. And then, of course, a redo of the general election against Stacey Abrams. Joe Biden parachuting into all of this to give a speech on voting rights legislation, the John Lewis Advancement Act and the um, Freedom to Vote Act. I listened to the whole thing. If I sound worked up today as a whole, it is because I think... I'll be very honest. I think maybe for the first time of Joe Biden's presidency, I'm I'm angry. I don't know what other word to use. I'm really angry. I'm disappointed. I'm angry. I'm a little outraged. And I don't use that word lightly. Not Twitter outrage. Like personally, again, I don't I hate when people talk this way, but like I had trouble calming down after the speech and having like a normal dinner, you know, with husband and toddler. Um, let me read you the part that really got under my skin, and then I want to get y'all's reaction. We will choose, the issue is, will we choose democracy over autocracy, light over shadows, justice over injustice? I know where I stand. I will not yield. I will not flinch. I will defend the right to vote, our democracy against all enemies, foreign and, yes, domestic. Joe Biden, the guy who ran on lowering the temperature on competency, on bipartisanship, on bringing the country together after four, again, whether you like Donald Trump or not, four not great years for the country in terms of pitting people against one another. And Joe Biden, in talking about two pieces of legislation that members of his own party are not willing to advance, said that anyone who does not support the legislation is an enemy of the country. I I don't understand. Uh, Mitt Romney was the first person in U.S. history to vote to convict a person, a president of his own party in an impeachment trial. He doesn't support this legislation. Maybe it's not a lack of courage. Maybe he just disagrees with the policy and maybe he's wrong. Maybe it's good policy and we'll talk about some of that. But to say that he is an enemy of the United States of America or that anyone who doesn't support this is an enemy is exactly what Joe Biden said he was not going to do to this country. Um, Jonah, up to you. Um, Once again, I think you're way too easy on Biden. Um, (laughs) uh, No, but in all seriousness, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. I thought it was a reprehensible demagogic and totally irresponsible speech. And, um, and I think what Chuck Schumer is doing, so let's not just put it all on Biden is, outrageous and reprehensible. I heard him this morning crapping all over Mitt Romney as a sort of a dishonest player in all of this. And the thing is, you would think if you actually believed that democracy was in peril, um, you might try to figure out a piece of legislation that wasn't in effect written two years before you thought democracy was in peril, um, but also that might be written in a way that could get Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and um, a bunch of, and Lisa Murkowski to vote for it. But there's no such interest whatsoever um, in doing that. There's in fact very little effort to get it in the kind of shape that would make Joe Manchin, who you know was the secretary of state of his own state and actually cares about this stuff, more enthusiastic to do it. It is such an obvious Trojan horse against the filibuster. And when you add in the fact that um, the other evidence that they have for uh, the return of Jim Crow, which again, I'm just going to bang my spoon on my high chair about this. Jim Crow was not primarily about voting. You know I mean? Like vote, the, the discrimination in the polling places was very bad. I don't want to say like, sound like I'm endorsing it. But it was part and parcel of a system of apartheid that's treated certain Americans as less worthy human beings who got different tiers of justice, who could be killed by lynch mobs. That, to me, is worse than the voting stuff. And now they're saying they're basically defining Jim Crow down to like 
restricting the availability of ballot drop boxes to pre-COVID measure levels or making voting as hard as it is in Delaware or New York in some circumstances. I think the the, the Georgia law was a not worth passing. I don't think it really did a lot that was really vital or important or anything like that. But to say that it is that if you endorse it and you don't allow the feds to federalize elections in a way that will erase the state's power to do election law, that you're on the side of Bull Connor is just grotesque Manichaean kind of politics. And what baffles me about it is I think it's stupid politics because I don't think the thing's going to pass and you're going to rev up your base. You're going to, you're going to convince He is doing in many ways, exactly what Donald Trump did. I mean, we mentioned this in the morning dispatch, Donald Trump said, there's no point for his, his fans to vote because the system is rigged. The logic of what Biden is saying is there's no point for you to vote because the system is rigged and that's what we're trying to fix. But if we don't fix it, your voting will be pointless from here on out. What a dumb message to send to your own voters when you know it's probably not going to pass. So it's it's the committing evil in the name of political malpractice is somehow it's a pas de deux of asininity that just drives me just batty. And I cannot see a defense of it from any angle. Steve, jump in, but also talk about the politics of the filibuster a little, because um, interestingly, I will tell you my position makes no sense which is that I like the Senate doing less. I think Congress doing less at times can be a very good thing for the country. Um, and I like it. I like the counter-majoritarian aspects of the filibuster. That being said, I don't think the filibuster has any sacred power. It was not handed down from the mount. And so I also feel no connection to the filibuster. Like somehow if they get rid of the filibuster, some norm that, you know, is a sacred part of the American experience is gone either. Well, it's a norm. I mean, it's been happening since the beginning of the Republic, right? So, I mean, whatever, whatever yeah, you, whether you like of. it or, or not, it's a norm. And I think, again, to, to the earlier point, Joe Biden came, came to office in part by promising to reestablish norms. Joe Biden gave a barn burner of a speech on the Senate floor in 2005, saying it was one of the most important speeches he's ever given in defense of the filibuster. Uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of political hypocrisy to go around on the filibuster. It's hard to come up with an issue in which both sides acquit themselves more poorly than their discussions of the filibuster because everybody just flips. Not everybody, but almost everybody just Debt flips. Debt ceiling and judicial appointments are other ones where it both, just depends yeah, on- yeah. yeah, and yeah. often related, right? I mean, in, in, in a couple of cases, those are related to the, the debates we're having on the, on the filibuster as well. But I see what you tried to do there, Sarah. I think you tried to distract me from picking up on your point and Jonah's because- you both went too easy on Biden on his speech <laughs> yesterday. It I was, was so mad. I was absolutely so worked up. disgraceful, absolutely disgusting. And it would have been disgusting if it were just from some run-of-the-mill run politician. I don't care whether it was a, a Republican or Democrat. Just in the manner in which it was so misleading, so incredibly dishonest for all the reasons that that both you and Jonah have have laid out that I won't rehash here. I mean, at one point, uh, we've got a fact check going up on the speech uh, on our website here pretty soon. But at one point, you know, Biden talked about remembering that this being the first of, of the many times that he was arrested. We don't have any evidence that he was arrested in voting rights protests. I mean, just Did you notice he kind of stopped fabrications. Himself? Yeah, like, because he knows. He stopped himself after he'd already said it. Like you could see in his face that he knew he had just said something that just had no bearing in reality. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would go, I, I don't think this is just dumb. I think it is so grossly irresponsible to so further doubts about the integrity of U.S. elections at a time when, as David wrote a couple weeks ago in, in his column, we need everybody sort of on board to prevent the things to 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 uh, make impossible the things that Donald Trump and his team tried to take advantage of 
when when we're reforming our our country's elections we can't afford to have somebody demagogically giving speeches trying to address problems that let's be honest more or less don't really exist there are huge huge problems in this country i would wager that voter suppression is just not one of them you look around and it's far far more easier to vote everywhere than it, than it ever has been in the past. If you look at the kinds of reforms that Biden denounced in the Georgia law, they're far more advanced in certain cases than, than the laws that are on the books in Delaware. And he's pretending that this is some great outrage. You know, we, we, we launched the dispatch and, and said part of what we wanted to do was give people the benefit of the doubt, address people's best arguments instead of their worst arguments, n- not sort of move instantly to outrage. I think Biden's speech doesn't let us do that because there are, he didn't make any good arguments. It was, it was all crap. And I think it will have lasting effects. I mean, we can get more into the politics of it. It's hard for me to understand how this was anything but a crass political move to uh, gin up his base before the 2022 midterms, because he's failing on all of these other fronts this is the way he thinks to get people excited and sadly i think this is a this is a sort of tried and true play from democratic playbooks going back years uh janet reno when she was bill clinton's attorney general launched a series of investigations into supposed voter f- suppression that didn't actually exist these things didn't happen we never heard the results of these investigations because the whole point was the announcement of them was to scare people into going to the polls because they thought their votes were going to be taken away. And it's absolutely disgusting that Joe Biden would claim that people like Mitt Romney or, or others who have questions about this are somehow like George Wallace. It's, it's, it was really gross. So, David, I guess my question to you is, I'm not actually sure. First of all, who was the audience for this speech? And yeah, that's second, a great question. Um, Nicole what? Wallace. Second, if the voting rights groups didn't want you there and said that you were all, you know, speech and no legislation, Stacey Abrams doesn't want to appear with you because you hurt her electorally, not help. Um, Who was this speech for? And is Steve right that it's a good way to rile up the base? Or is the base like so far past it that they don't even trust Joe Biden anymore? And they're kind of smart enough to know that this speech was only to rile them up and not because he's actually trying to get it done. Yeah, I I honestly don't know who the speech is for. The the base, the riling up at the base, I think, is the idea that this speech, going to Georgia and, and delivering this speech, is going to rile up the base enough to reverse Biden's political fortunes when, let's be honest, he doesn't even have 50 votes on this legislation. It's not as if he's going in there with a the United Democratic Front where hey, I just have to give it this last rhetorical push and we're going to actually get rid of the filibuster and get something done. He doesn't even have 50 votes. And and so for me, it's just really hard to figure this out. It's not hard to figure out his rhetoric, though, because this is Joe Biden. Joe Biden, when he goes to racial issues, he has a long history of this stuff. I mean, remember the put y'all back in chains comment about the Romney Ryan ticket. The, and I'll say that again, the Romney-Ryan ticket. He has one play in the playbook, which is you're with me or you are with the Confederates and the Army of Northern Virginia. I mean, that's basically the playbook that he goes to. I mean, literally, he says, do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? And so he has this one play in the playbook. I mean, maybe he thinks it worked in 2012, maybe, but he was also... He had hitched his political star to his political wagon to a political star in Barack Obama who didn't need that kind of rhetoric to become president. And so I don't know exactly, honestly, what he's doing here. There's been some really interesting analysis in recent years that says, or in recent months, I should say, that says if you really want to know who are the radicals on the Democratic side, well, of course, Twitter but also funders, funders, Democratic donors, large Democratic donors are tending to pour money into more radical causes. And so I think that 
part of what's going on here is you have a combination of a Twitter base, which is so small that you can't even really call it a base, and an awful lot of funding that is really pouring into these issues and really pouring into this issue in particular in a way that maybe perhaps is deceiving people into thinking that this is something that people care about on the scale of millions instead of on the scale of tens or hundreds of thousands. And I think he's just swinging and missing here, but he's swinging and missing in a particularly destructive way by raising the rhetorical stakes at exactly the time when we just don't need this at all. This is the least constructive because the idea that you look at Georgia, if you're a Georgia voter right now, the idea that if Georgia's current law stands, that it's anything like Bull Connor or Jefferson Davis or George Wallace, do words have meaning? I mean, these are historical figures who did things in the world and it wasn't restrict early voting by a couple of days. Well, and this is, I do, we all agree with this point, but I want to put it out there before the comment section blows up. Uh, there are academic studies that show that the, the laws or restrictions the Democrats are pointing to that amount to voter suppression actually have no such effect. I've put them in the suite for those who want to go read the studies uh, that in fact, it turns out people who want to vote, vote and things like that don't matter. Now, uh, you know, just because you're willing to wait five hours in line doesn't mean you should have to wait five hours in line. I'm very open to that. At the same time, and we've discussed this before, but I just want to mention it in this podcast context as well. Republicans who are trying to fix voter fraud. I've worked in three presidential campaigns overseeing legal teams. It is my job to get creative about how someone can move enough votes to change the result of a statewide election, which is how, of course, presidential elections are decided by statewide elections. And I, to this day, have not come up with one. Again, I've written all the ways I've thought of in the sweep uh, uh, another year and a half or so back. I explained how it would work. I explained why it wouldn't work because basically you'd need like an Area 51 level conspiracy with too many people involved. Um, and the only one that I think could work again, not to sway a statewide election, is to go to your opponent's neighborhood, collect all the absentee ballots you can find and throw them in the trash, which is basically what happened in that North Carolina congressional race. In the end, they were able to collect what looks like about a thousand ballots. They got caught. Uh, by Republicans. By yeah, Republicans. Yeah, it was done yes. by Republicans. Republicans were the offenders. Yes. And they redid the congressional race. My point being, both sides are trying to solve a problem that should rate, even if their version of reality is sort of correct, should rate like so far below the fact that there's no chicken or ground beef at my grocery store and that if there were chicken or ground beef, it would cost 40% more than it did last year. The great bacon shortage, um, that Chicago public schools were closed for no reason, that Jonah's daughter's, you know, College is going virtual, which does make her available for more babysitting, which I appreciate. But <laughs> at what cost? <laughs> so, so I have a political question to change gears a little bit, uh, if, if it's all right. I, so, like you've all, uh, who had a wonderful piece in the New York Times about how to make Sarah, making Sarah's point, which is that both parties are subscribing to a narrative that, in fact, is not reality. Like it just doesn't exist as a serious problem. The, but either the voter suppression stuff or the voter fraud stuff. I'm not saying there aren't anecdotal things, but yeah, it's just not the metaphysical threat that both parties are obsessed with. They're following a fake narrative. I want to change. Yuval also makes another point, which I think is a very important one. If you were going to design in the abstract a bad reason to abolish the filibuster, to take you could you could almost it's hard to come up with a better one than saying, OK, imagine Congress is split 50 50. Um, the narrowest Democratic control or party control in American history. And you're going into midterms that you are almost undoubtedly going to lose control. So what do you want to do? You want to abolish the filibuster to cram through changes to election laws that the other party, again, misguidingly thinks are more cat catastrophic than they are, but be that as it may, you also want to federalize national elections, which I do think would be catastrophic. Um, and then, like literally, what, four months later after you actually get this legislation passed, you're going to hand the keys of the Senate 
to the party that you've enraged and tell them you don't have to follow the filibuster anymore. What galaxy brain scheme do uh, uh, what 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 is like the long run thinking that goes into this scheme for Democrats? I mean, unless you honestly believe changing all the passing HR one and the John Lewis thing will forestall Democrats winning in twenty twenty two. Except why this do is, this now? This is one of the other fundamental flaws on both sides. By the way, Republicans think that voter suppression helps them win elections. Mm-hmm. And there is absolutely no evidence. None. And Democrats think that more people voting means that that Delta is all their people, or at least 80% their people. Nope. As again, 2020 showed in many districts, not true. Also, just increasing, uh, you know, sort of BIPOC voters, people of color voting. Nope. It turns out in Texas and Florida, that didn't help Democrats. So again, real misunderstanding if it's purely political of what either side thinks they're accomplishing. Hey, Steve, can, can, can yeah, can I make just one, one more quick point Please. about, about the discussion of all of this? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody would point to the four of us and say, wow, that this is a bunch of rabid knee jerk partisan Republican types, right? <laughs> uh, we've spent a fair amount of time criticizing the Republican party and exactly that kind of partisanship. And, these are, you know, the arguments we're making maybe in stronger terms than than others might are totally legitimate arguments. You saw Mitt Romney give a seven minute speech basically laying this out in a in a I would say a calmer, more sober minded fashion than we have here today, but making a series of very good substantive points on this. And you know what's basically been missing from the media coverage of this? Those points. I mean, read the New York Times piece this morning. It's a news analysis, but it's basically an amplification of the arguments that Joe Biden made yesterday and going further. And, you know, you don't see in it the the kinds of counterpoints that we're making here that Mitt Romney has made that are totally legitimate. And I think, you're, you know, again, we don't spend a ton of time doing doing media criticism. So when we do it, I, I hope people pay attention. It's the kind of thing that's going to make more Republicans say, forget it. I'm out. I'm, I'm not paying attention to this crap from mainstream media. They don't, they allow Joe Biden to go and, and pretend that this is Jim Crow 2.0. What bullshit is that? This, this is going rating. This is going to make this is going to make more Republicans who are paying attention say, "I'm just out. I don't want to listen to them," and and it'll drive them further to places like Breitbart, Gateway Pundit, other places that they are going to hear what what they want to hear because they don't trust anybody else. It's it's oh, Steve. It's awfully it kind of sounds like you're making my January sixth point from last week just a little bit, just a little bit. No, <laughs> I'm not at all making it. I'm not at all making that point. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, David, I want to move to the substance a little. You can still bring in the politics, but substantively, um, there's individual things that this bill does. It sets a standard for how many weeks you have to have of early voting, for no excuse mail ballots, election day is a holiday, automatic voter registration, same day voter registration. I think, um, I, I think first of all, I'm in favor of many of those, if not all of them. 
Uh, the difference is that it would federalize all of these standards. We wouldn't have 50 state elections. We would have sort of one national election with maybe some quirky things in your state. But the fact that this legislation even discusses, you know, how close you can get to someone handing out food or water. And I realize that's sort of a niche thing because they're all worked up that they think that in the state of Georgia, you can't hand out food or water to people standing in line. And I believe it's just that it's the same rule as many states have. Uh, Some states are 20 feet, some states are 50 feet, some states are 150 feet from the door to the polling place to be able to hand out partisan material that can include bottles of water that have like the candidate's you know, logo on it, et cetera. Um, so th- this federalizes our elections. I think Republicans have a knee-jerk response that federalizing stuff is bad. I'm not as knee-jerk about that. I'd like to have a little bit of a conversation on truly whether it's so bad if we have standards for how we hold federal elections, right? They are federal elections for federal representatives. Why shouldn't that be set by the federal government? Now, the interesting question I have is, okay, what... I am, from a constitutional standpoint, let's get a little advisory opinions going Ooh. here. So isn't a an election of a federal representative or senator really, isn't that different from the election of an elector and a presidential elector? And isn't that constitutionally really handed over to the state legislatures, the manner of that election? Now, so that's the interesting question that I have here with a lot of this is there's actually kind of a gray area here constitutionally as to to what extent can the federal government federalize a presidential election? That's an open question here. And everyone's acting like, well, we can do what we want to do with with the presidential election. I do think there's more latitude on senators and representatives but we can do what we want to do on the presidential election. And I think that that's a very much, that is very much of an open question. And I would say that not all of this necessarily would pass muster. So I think that that's when Republicans say, Hey, I'm against federalizing, especially a presidential election. They have a constitutional basis for saying that. That's one of the reasons why I have circled the wagons around the electoral count act and reforming the electoral count act which is aimed directly at the part of the presidential election process that is constitutionally, that constitutionally happens in Congress. And so I, I have a lot, there are several provisions here that I, I like. I like the idea of an election day holiday. I, there, uh, there are, uh, I like, you know, uh, early, I like uniformity in early voting. I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of early voting for a number of reasons, but I like the idea of uniformity in early voting. I like some of these ideas. I have a real question um, in our constitutional republic as to whether they're constitutional, to be honest. Jonah, you said that you thought federalizing the election was uh, really, really bad. Why? Um, in Well, for a bunch of, first of all, because I'm one of those yahoos who just thinks they hear the word federalizing and they want to flip the safety on their rifle. But, um, (laughs) but no, more seriously, I, we want lots and it's sort of like fighting the pandemic. We actually want lots and lots of fire breaks in our system where if we see in the case of pandemics, bad policies being implemented, we can learn from them. In the case of elections, if there is fraud in the current system where it's handled by each state, it's localized, it can be identified. Um, if you have the essentially the Department of Justice as an arm of the executive branch running elections in all 50 states and all these counties, um, it has been known to happen that attorneys general have been partisan figures. I don't want to like shock you guys. Um, <laughs> what? And when you concentrate that power in one place, it makes it a lot easier to actually have bad decisions made on at scale in a way that you can't have at the local level. Um, and I think that is a better way to run a railroad. I also just simply think that if you want to federalize a lot of this stuff, Amend the Constitution to it because, like, it's like the, the 
the states are supposed to be sovereign and they're supposed to be the ones in charge of their elections. And I know the federal government has a little bit of a say so in these things, but the idea of ta- having the feds take it over entirely just strikes me, you know, and I'm, I know I am unfrozen caveman, non-constitutional lawyer here, but like, I, it just strikes me as, is antithetical to the, the thrust of the constitutional regime that we have. Steve, are you against making election day a national holiday? Um, I'm okay with that. I, don't, I guess I'd, I don't, I don't have strong feelings about that. Yeah, I guess I, I wouldn't oppose. I, I oppose the What about the two weeks of early voting? Two, two months of early two voting? Two weeks. Two weeks of early voting, mandatory. Two, two weeks of early voting? Yeah, sure. I, I'm not opposed to it in principle. I don't want the federal government making that decision necessarily. I'd, I'd rather have states make their own decisions based on conditions in, in their states. Um you know, to, to I guess pick part up on, of my question to you, Steve, is that we're moving away from federalism in so many other parts of how our country is set up. Um, you know, maybe two of the only things really left are our criminal justice codes are still written by states. There are very few federal crimes of the people who are currently incarcerated. If you have a problem with mass incarceration, I think it's what 85 percent are in state facilities, not federal uh, and elections. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not working out so well, right? Hey, Look I was going to say, how, how does that move away from federalization generally working? I don't know. But like if states are no longer, I think, the, the polity that they were, you don't identify first with your state anymore the way that you did in 1820 or in 1890, frankly. And so maybe that part of the union experiment, like maybe we're just over it. But maybe people, maybe we'd be in a lot better position if people did, um, whether it's the state, whether it's their, their localities. I mean, I, look, I mean, there was a sort of fundamental wisdom to, to what the founders argued about the government closest to the people will govern vast. I mean, I think that's been borne out again and again and again. We could give countless examples of that. I, I don't see that nationalizing these, it was part of the, part of what we're, part of the problem with our elections is that everything has become an, a national issue these days it's like there are no local issues anymore and you can find people to to gin up outrage on any of a variety of national issues spin them into some kind of angry coalition and look around these are the outcomes we're getting i mean i think that that largely explains what joe biden is is trying to do here um and it's not it's not good for any of us i don't think it's good for any of us all right Let's end on uh, a more negative note. Let's be honest. So <laughs> here's my even question. more. This yeah, is, even this has been a relentlessly negative podcast. That's right. Uh, the worst three-hour drive in America, David. Three hour or more, correct? Correct. Yes, that was the, that was that was the original tweet Fair. from yeah. yeah. There, there's the answer to that is absolutely the drive from Nashville to Atlanta. Um, it is supposed to take slightly under four hours uh, with little traffic. The last time I did it, it took me seven and a half hours coming and going both directions, seven and a half hours, which led me to vow to never voluntarily do this ever again. Um, the I don't care how much you broaden the interstate highway system. You could make it 30 lanes on each side in Atlanta. And from about, I don't know, 1.30 until 9.30 at night, it's going to be bumper to bumper. Uh, and then in the morning, I guess from like 5 a.m. till 1.25, it's going to be bumper to bumper. It's insane. And then you go through this Chattanooga choke point, which I swear to you, you take some of the highest traffic volumes in the United States of America and just decide suddenly to to funnel them through one lane, just (laughs) one lane. Why? I don't know, but one lane. It is absolutely remarkable. And then you've decided to compound it all by saying, you know what we're going to do? Eternal road construction. It's not an actual project. The project is the construction and it has to be there and it has to continue for at least 20 years. And at no point can you broaden beyond that one lane. So that's the answer to that question. Jonah? Okay, we should point out that this was from a tweet, which we can put in the show notes, that got a lot of talk. And I found it compelling in part because 
a whole bunch of people were talking about like various drives in Nebraska, um, which all apologies to certain senators um, is a pretty boring place to drive through. But um, the, the fact is, is, in my experience, the overwhelming majority of crappy driving in this country is almost in, is, is way disproportionately east of the Mississippi. Um, and I'll take driving at 80 miles an hour through flat, boring Nebraska or, or Eastern South Dakota or any of that kind of stuff over I-66 or I-95 from Central <laughs> Virginia trying to get into D.C. on a Saturday, right? As or, Senator Tim Kaine found out. Exactly. Or any place basically on I-95 in Florida. Um, and so I think that the worst three hours, you know, if you're not talking about just purely a traffic jam like O'Hare to downtown Chicago, um, but if you're talking about the absolute worst drive in terms of both being scenically unpleasant and physically unpleasant to drive in i think it's got to be basically that new jersey turnpike through delaware memorial bridge um before maryland starts to get pretty where it is just <laughs> um uh there's just nothing redeeming about it except you might in your my case associate it with going home um, and that's the price you pay to go home. Um, so that's mine. Steve. I mean, I do think our, our West coast LA listeners might quibble with the claim that it's all East of the mo- almost all there's some spots in yeah. California to be sure. And I five yeah. coming out of Seattle is terrible too, but it's pretty. Well, you got close in a couple of your, your, your mentions in your rambling comment there, Jonah, you got close to the correct answer. Uh, I would Ohio say, Turnpike, aren't you? Ohio Turnpike is is pretty. Actually, I would say Pennsylvania Turnpike heading into Ohio is really awful. Um, the drive from South Chicago to Milwaukee, trying to get through Chicago. I used to have to do this every time I went home from college in in Indiana, um, and we would time our our drives so that we were doing them at midnight, so that there wouldn't be Chicago traffic, and there was Chicago traffic every single time. So really bad there. But the correct answer is. It, it's a three-hour drive from Richmond to D.C., and it should only be a 90-minute drive, but it's a three-hour drive on the best days, and as Tim Kane found out, it is sometimes a, whatever, a 27-hour drive. drive. I am yeah. now at the point where whenever I'm headed south, I will loop 30 to 40 miles out of my way, usually to the east, and go through um, Maryland, like stoplight traffic, Maryland, um, in order to avoid 95 South or 95 North, because if you're, if you get stuck, you could be stuck for several hours. And at least with the traffic, you're going to, it's going to take you a half hour longer. You bake that in, but it's probably only going to take you a half hour longer. Okay. So the answer that I, I'm, it's tough, right? Because Austin to Dallas is a miserable drive. It should be three hours, but instead it's usually five. It's, you know, not the prettiest part of Texas, I would argue. But on the one hand, you've got, you've got Bucky's to stop at. You've got some great barbecue to stop at, at the, on the way. And you're in Texas. So it can't be the worst drive in America. But on the other hand, you are trying to get to Dallas. So your destination sucks. <laughs> So I think that is my pick. Austin driving toward Dallas. You just know you're making life mistakes and you're going to be there for five hours. Um, And, you know, Bucky's is great, but Bucky's can't fix your destination. Yeah. The stretch to Pedro south of the border is is enough to make you cut yourself. Um, But but I I agree. There's a lot of bad driving out there. Houston to Austin, on the other hand, is one of the most beautiful. It's two hours and 45 minutes. It's a gorgeous drive as you head through the hill country. Ruska's, which is about the halfway point, has incredible kolaches uh, that you've got to stop for. So there. Um, Thank you so much for joining us this week. We appreciate all of you. We look forward to the comments section. And uh, we'll see you in the comments.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.